Welcome to Love Unpacked, a podcast based on the book Love Unpacked. I'm your host, Andy Franklin. Join me on a journey to unpack our stories, confront our past, and find our way to unconditional love. Happy Friday, everybody. Derek and I are going out of town this weekend, and I am beyond excited. We really need some time alone to reconnect. Life has just been crazy, so I hope you also get a chance to do something fun over the weekend or productive. Just, you know, anything that makes you feel good and ah, calms you down and gets you ready for the next week ahead. In the spirit of not wasting any of your time, I'm going to let you know right now, this episode is a tough one. It has major trigger warnings here. We're dealing with verbal abuse, sodomy, um, sexual assault, and trauma. If that is triggering for you, or if you just don't want to start your weekend that way, I completely understand. Feel free to come back to this when you're ready or skip the episode. Um, Always, always, always take care of yourself first. As with all of my harder topics, I do my best to tell this story as gently as possible. I don't get too into detail and Of course, because we're doing an unpack, there is a beautiful message at the end. Nonetheless, like I said, please take care of yourself. And please, if this is going to be triggering for you, just don't listen. Or just come back to it at a better time. Okay? I care about you way more than I care about getting listens on this podcast. So you first, okay? If you're sticking around today, thank you for allowing me to share this space with you. And if you yourself have ever been a victim of assault in any form, I just want you to know that I see you, I hear you, and if you ever want to talk, I'm here. Chapter 4. Trauma. The boy with the crooked smile. Anything that's human is mentionable. And anything that is mentionable can be more manageable. When we talk about our feelings, they become less overwhelming, less upsetting, and less scary. The people we trust with that important talk can help us know that we are not alone. Fred Rogers. Kyle told me he was thinking about killing himself. Our drama teacher, Mr. Stevens, wiggled the play he wrote himself into the spring schedule and forced the entire class to participate, which meant we had two full casts. It was an exasperating tale of young children living in a mental institution, and I desperately wanted the role of Charlie, the dark and cynical pyro. But, of course, I got typecast as Sarah, the shy and timid little girl who created an imaginary friend to help her cope with her abusive father. Kyle and I had to work a few scenes together, and that's when he began confiding in me that he wanted to die. Insert my sensational savior syndrome here. I was convinced all he needed was a good friend to guide him back to the light, and I fervently committed myself to the task. Kyle saw my efforts as divine intervention and concluded all signs were pointing toward a -a once-in-a-lifetime romance opportunity between the two of us. Personally, I didn't have any interest in him other than to fulfill my bloodlust for saving people, but he was unconventionally charming and persistent. He began writing me love letters with impressive hand-drawn artwork of the two of us bowling, sitting in a movie theater, 
or laughing over a pizza dinner, which was both flattering and perplexing. I continued to politely decline his advances. Conversely, as a last-ditch effort, he illustrated a scenario where I missed out on true love because I was too afraid and essentially dared me to take a chance on him. At that time in my life, I was infamous among my inner circle for never refusing a dare, no matter how wild. So I took the bait and agreed to give him a shot to prove me wrong. After all, what was the worst that could happen? Kyle towered over my 5'4 frame at just under six feet tall, with broad shoulders hovering over his recently trimmed build and a crooked smile that always reminded me of the Joker. He was charismatic and sarcastic with a thunderous laugh. When he'd get upset, his sharp face turned ruby red with passion. Kyle had an endearing way about him, the sort of roguish charm that only narcissists possess, but of course, I hadn't put my finger on what to call it at the time. Instead, I found myself intrigued by his teenage angst and immersed in solving the riddle that was him. His allure was matched by his intellect, and we spent countless hours on the phone discussing everything from life's greatest mysteries to the undeniable talent of the Red Hot Chili Peppers. I found him attractive in an unconventional yet captivating way and had grown fond of him as a friend, so I couldn't understand why I was struggling to let him in as anything more. It was as if my head was willing, but my body was activating its fight-or-flight response any time he tried to lean into me for affection. I tried to stop our relationship before it started on the phone the same evening he forced his lips to mine for the first time. But Kyle already had me pegged. I like you, and you like me. You're just afraid that I'm going to hurt you like your dad did. But I won't. Stop blaming me for your dad's crimes and let me in. Kyle loved to tell me how I felt about things. He was an expert at inserting his own opinions into my mouth and claiming they were mine all along. Every word that slithered off his tongue was methodical and calculated, meant to propel himself forward towards his goals, and in this instance, I was the target of his venomous bite. I allowed him to talk me in and out of whatever he wanted. Yes, we should be together. No, I guess I don't need to see those friends anymore. Yes, let's spend all of our free time at your house. No, you're right. I shouldn't go to that event or listen to that song anymore that so-and-so dedicated to me in the first grade. He was the lighter fluid and I was the match, burning all the bridges to anyone who didn't understand how a girl like me could be with a guy like him. Friends who declared him as an asshole, of which there were many, faced the chopping block and found themselves trimmed from my life like fat on a T-bone steak. Kyle constantly reminded me that anyone who wasn't for us was against us, and clearly jealous of our high school love. And I believed him. Over the summer, I was hired for my first professional performing job as one of three female leads in a show called G.I. Jills at the Corona Civic Light Opera House, which only further isolated me from my friendships. A rigorous rehearsal schedule and two-week show run meant my free time was limited, and what little I had to give was reserved for Kyle without question. By the time we walked into our senior year of high school, I only had a handful of companions left to my name. The faithful few who were happy for me, or at least pretended to be. By then, I was completely brainwashed. 
Lines began to blur, and my moral compass was no longer listening to those tiny figures on my shoulder. Instead, I was taking direct orders from Kyle. It started innocently enough. We'd make out, and occasionally he'd try and shove his hand down my pants. Though he was usually unsuccessful because I wore skin-tight jeans. I assumed this was just how teenage boys and high school relationships went. But one night, I asked my mom to listen in on a phone conversation I was having with him because I needed to know if it was me or if something was wrong here. Kyle was on the other line expressing his sexual frustration with me and how he needed me to give more than I was. When we hung up, my mom encouraged me to give a little more. All she knew, of course, was that I grew up an extremely sheltered little girl and had an affinity for being a do-gooder. She was just trying to help me live a little bit more on the edge. She didn't want me having sex or anything like that, but, you know, everything else was left on the table. Honestly, this memory haunts my mom, but it makes me proud of her. I lived my entire life up until that moment feeling ashamed of my sexuality, and there she was, telling me it was okay to be a sexual creature. Unfortunately, it was the wrong guy for cheerleading, but she never could have known that. That fall, the intensity of the relationship progressed. After school, he'd bring me to his house while his parents worked and lead me to his bed, where he'd practically rip off my pants. The entire charade made me extremely uncomfortable. I'd protest and try to pull his face up from my crotch, but he was so much stronger and would pin my arms to the bed. I learned quickly that faking an orgasm was my only way out of this situation, so that's what I did. Protest, get pinned, fake orgasm, give a blowjob. Happy guy, happy lie. I never got used to it, but what did I know? I was a reformed Jesus freak on the brink of what should have been a sexual awakening. Clearly, I just needed to be broken in, and Kyle was undoubtedly dedicated to breaking me. Occasionally, I'd find an excuse not to come over until his stepmom got home, so he couldn't pounce on me, but most of the time, I just did what he wanted. I was a rag doll in the jaw of a grizzly bear, a play toy for him to do whatever he pleased with me. Sometime after Thanksgiving our senior year, on a crisp autumn afternoon, Kyle hinted he had a surprise as we drove to his house after school got out. He told me to get naked and lay on the bed, belly down. I didn't know what to make of the request, but I trusted him for some reason, so I did as he asked. Next thing I knew, he was entering me, anally, and my entire body tightened in pain and panic. I honestly cannot remember if he finished or not. I don't know how long it lasted. It was as if I left my body. All I remember is him climbing off of me and walking to the bathroom without saying a word. I heard the shower turn on, and a few moments later, he told me to join him and wash off. I could hardly lift my body from the bed, but I did. I was terrified of what would happen to me if I didn't. But in the shower, he was tender. He led his fingertips lightly across my body and held me close as if we just shared something sacred and holy. After the warm water washed the filth off my body, I began wondering if I simply hadn't made myself clear enough for him. Should I have said those no's louder? Maybe he didn't hear me. Maybe it was my fault. He'd never intentionally hurt me. This is all one big misunderstanding. Even if 
deep down, I knew the truth because I'd seen the aggression before when he held me down and forced his mouth on my vagina. Even if I had muscle pains from trying to push him off of me, even if he'd forced me into our first date, first kiss, and now apparently my first experience with sexual intercourse, he loved me, and this is just what high school boys did, right? A few weeks later, Kyle had a cold, and I was headed to his house with a care package like a good little Red Riding Hood. The guy could barely speak or stand, but wouldn't you know it, he wanted to go down on me and me on him. This time, I capitalized on the advantage of not being sick and was able to overpower him. You're sick, no, and I have to leave for Shelly's house anyway. Get some rest, I'll call you later. I love you. Too sick to really fight it, he let me leave and off to Shelly's I hurried. We cozied in her bed, babysitter's club style, and girl talked about school, friends, and boys. I giggled and exclaimed, Kyle is so crazy. I just dropped off a care package for him because he's sick and he was trying to force himself down on me. Shelly's smile slid off her face. Did you tell him not to? Well, yeah, but you know how guys are. He didn't this time because he was too sick, but usually he'll just hold me down. She grabbed both my hands and looked me square in the eyes to emphasize her next words. Andy, that's not normal, and it isn't okay. That's sexual harassment. You need to tell your mom. If you've never been in an abusive relationship, then I understand how this sounds from the outside looking in but I genuinely couldn't fully see what was right in front of my face until someone I loved and trusted pointed it out. Yet, the moment she spoke, I broke down in tears because I knew she was right. I didn't even tell her about the rape because at that point, I still hadn't processed it. All I knew as I lifted my body from her bed and practically ran out of her house to go home and collapse into my mother was that Kyle's smokescreen was gone and I finally caught a glimpse of the monster he really was. I called and broke up with him that night. I knew if I approached him with the truth, he'd find a way to convince me I was crazy or overreacting, and I also knew I could never be alone with him again. So I lied. I used the oldest trick in the Christian handbook and blamed it on the big guy himself. I just feel God calling us to break up. I'm sorry. It's not you. It's not me. It's God. I mean, who could argue with that? If I left the story here, you'd probably think it was traumatic enough, but unfortunately, this isn't where the tale ends. Rape, as it turns out, was only the intermission. Kyle had a way to go with his performance, and I was his involuntary co-star. My mom put me in therapy almost immediately. It wasn't until I was a few sessions in, when I knew I could trust my new therapist, Grace, that I confided about the afternoon where he took it to the next level. Her eyes met mine softly with concern as I detailed what happened, adding it to the list of harassment we were discussing. Yet again, I found myself utterly unaware of the gravity of my abuse until it was articulated out loud to me. Andy, that's rape. He raped you, honey. Rape? Did she just say rape? It didn't seem possible that a word so foul could apply to my life. Why didn't I piece it together? What was wrong with me that a man raped me and my reaction was to wonder if I was the problem? 
With my permission, she spoke separately to my mom about this new information, and my parents wanted to go straight to the police. But I wouldn't let them, and honestly, my therapist agreed with me. The idea of spending my senior year in a courtroom recapping the vivid details of my trauma sounded worse than death, and Grace cautioned my parents that most rapists walk free because it's too difficult to prove in a court of law. So back to high school, I sheepishly crawled. I saw my rapist every day in drama class and tried to avoid his attempts to pass notes my way or corner me into a discussion. Then I made an error in judgment that almost kept me from graduating. I told my best friend at the time that I'd been raped, and she spilled the tea to everyone else, including Kyle. This is high school, dear friends. High school concocts a world within a world where people who aren't exactly children, but aren't quite adults yet, spend six-plus hours a day together and get minor choices throughout, like what elective to choose or where to go off campus for lunch. High schoolers are like the paparazzi of education. Everybody walks around waiting for shit to hit the fan, any shit at all, in hopes they can be the ones to break the story first and claim glory as the person with the juiciest slice of post-pubescent pie. I naively expected my friend to go against the status quo and carry my secret, but she didn't. And that's when life began to unravel at the seams. The saga of Andy and Kyle split six-period advanced drama into two parts. The people who believed me and the people who didn't. I neither confirmed nor denied the rumors, but they formed their opinions nonetheless. And some people I thought were my friends started calling me a liar and a slut behind my back, often within ear range. Kyle didn't take the exposure well either. I don't ever recall him actually denying the claims, at least not to me. But he was surely going to make me foot the bill for it. And pay for it? I did. You see... I'd grossly underestimated him. I assumed if I just kept my head down, he would leave me alone. But that isn't how a narcissist works. Kyle began verbally harassing me at school as if it were his senior thesis project. He was in charge of the morning announcements and did a dedication to his ex-girlfriend who shattered his heart on Valentine's Day, playing our song across the speakers for the entire school to hear. He yelled accusations like, You're a miserable bitch! across the quads at me while I made my way to third period. There was even an altercation in the theater one day, where his sharp face turned ruby red with the passion of a thousand suns as he shouted obscenities and charged toward me with such a fury that fellow classmates had to form a protective barrier around me using their bodies as shields. I looked like a VIP being ushered from a hostile situation by the Secret Service as my friends pushed their way through Kyle and led me to grab my belongings so I could get the hell out of Dodge. School had become unbearable, and my last resort was to make an appointment with the vice principal in hopes that he could help in some way, any possible way. I tapped my toes nervously in a metal frame chair as I waited for the secretary to call my name. News may have spread faster than a California wildfire among my peers, but I hadn't actually spoken about what was going on with anyone other than a few select women. And now, I was going to not only talk to a man about it for the first time, 
but a man I had no prior rapport with my entire high school career. Mr. LeDuc opened his door and offered me a seat inside. My voice cracked as I explained briefly what was happening to me under his roof. My my ex-boyfriend raped me, and now he's harassing me at school. He, he yells at me in the halls and even got in my face screaming in drama last week. I cry all the time. I, I'm afraid to be here, and I don't know what to do. LeDuc wasn't impressed. He clasped his hands behind his neck, forming wings with his elbows, and leaned back in his chair. I know how you drama kids like to over-exaggerate sometimes, Sandy. I think the best thing you can do for yourself here is just let it go. Then, and I shit you not, this really happened. He lunged his body forward, threw his hands on the desk with the enthusiasm of someone who just realized the cure for cancer or something, and started to sing to the tune of the Beatles hit, Let It Be. Let it go, let it go, let it go, let it go. Whisper words of wisdom, let it go. My lungs collapsed. I felt crushed under the weight of his janky, out-of-tune rendition of advice. There I was doing exactly what they say you should do if you're being bullied or harassed at school. And instead of protection or comfort or even just some belief in what I was brave enough to share, the vice principal offered me an explanation for what he considered a distorted perception of what was really going on and serenaded me with a remix to go with it. That was the day I stopped attending most of my classes. High school, as I came to know it, wasn't a safe place for me to be any longer. While other students were applying for colleges and making the most of senior year, I was showing up just long enough to be counted as in attendance for the day so that my parents wouldn't get a phone call before heading to Jamba Juice and Ikea to walk around and be as far away from Kyle and his assassination games as possible. If my school wasn't going to keep me safe, I'd have to do it myself, so I did. In fact, the only reason I graduated high school at all is that most of my teachers liked me so much as a student before my life fell apart that they allowed me to turn in homework and take makeup tests outside of class. As for the less flexible teachers, I was able to take night school for their classes to catch up and graduate with the rest of my peers. I was supposed to make my big directorial debut that spring with Charlie Brown, the first musical my high school would ever take on thanks to my detailed proposal the year prior. I was meant to perform a powerful dramatic piece in the Fullerton Theater Festival that would launch my acting career, take over Disneyland with my friends for grad night, and leave tear stains on yearbooks as I penned beautiful dedications about how great our final year together was and how much I'd miss everyone. But I didn't achieve any of those dreams. Everything went on without me, of course. The curtain was called... Disneyland was littered with gleeful teenagers from my hometown, and yearbooks were filled with sweet words and phone numbers. As for me, all I wanted to do was get the hell out of there. I wanted to be as far away from Kyle, Mr. Stevens, Mr. LeDuc, and everyone who was slamming me behind my back and to my face as possible. By the time Kyle was done with me, 
I felt like I had died. My innocence had been stolen. I was still technically a virgin by societal standards, which my friends would so callously remind me if I dared to bring up what occurred. I mean, at least it was just anal. It's not like he took your virginity or got you pregnant or anything like that. And so I learned to either laugh about it, speak robotically like a historian reporting on something that transpired thousands of years ago, or pretend it never happened. I shoved the pain and fear and utter disgust with myself and my body deep down in mental limbo where they couldn't hurt me or give others the power to destroy me with their opinions. I developed a thick coat of cement over my heart to protect myself so I'd never have to experience another Kyle as long as I lived. Unpacking Trauma Looking back, There were so many red flags that I'm shocked I couldn't see the giant do not date this manipulative creep sign hovering over his head. I was so desperate to fill the gaping hole inside my heart I believed my biological father left that I stopped running credit checks and gave anyone a key who was persistent enough to try. Plus, abusers tend to be the most persistent of them all. There's a reason criminals choose dingy motels to commit their crimes. They're usually worn down and trashed, so the owner is willing to give a key to anyone as long as they can pay. There are typically no room checks, no house cleaning routines to interrupt the deadly deeds. There's mainly just some cash and a key and an extended stay of privacy for the psycho to carry out their diabolical plans. I was the motel and Kyle reigned as my tenant. He paid me in compliments, and his confident, authoritative tone suggested that I don't mess with his reasoning, so I didn't. I just took the cash, handed over the key, and let him claim space. At the tender age of 17, I believed this was the love I deserved. I thought Kyle was as good as it was going to get for a baggage-ridden girl like me. Perhaps the craziest part about the entire experience was that initially after calling things off with him, Even though I was now consciously aware of the abuse, I still missed him. There was this distorted part of me that felt bad for hurting his feelings and breaking his heart. Kyle had unlocked a new level of psychological bullying I'd never witnessed before, and I really felt guilty for not only his emotions, but also for inconveniencing our friends in the process. Saying that out loud is hard because it forces me to admit how easy it was for him to control me. All my life, I was told I was above average. I was talented, bright, unique, and wise. How could I possess all of these alleged gifts and not see this horror coming? How did I let him sink his razor-sharp teeth into me like a great white shark? I adopted a favorite quote during this time in my life, credited to Anonymous, that says, A man who knows everything knows he knows nothing. It was my senior quote under the photo of me in the yearbook, but I didn't understand how it applied to that specific stage until I began digging into this within the last year. My problem was rooted in the belief that I knew everything. My confidence in my wisdom is what pushed me to sit with Kyle in the first place. I thought I was a teenage prophet able to solve the world's problems, whether it involved finding the perfect eyeshadow shade to match a friend's outfit, interpreting the Bible, 
or helping a classmate work through his suicidal thoughts. I believed I was a hotshot, the Wikipedia of adolescent affairs, your go-to girl in time of questioning or need. But I was just a kid, like everyone else. I'd barely any life experience. So when trauma hit me, my toolbox was filled with cobwebs and an IOU. And when I did finally step outside of myself and try to reach for help, I was denied. My therapist told me reporting wouldn't yield any results. My teacher didn't step in when Kyle's spit was spraying my face. And my vice principal told me to let it go as my ex-boyfriend and assaulter continued to harass me whenever I was brave enough to show up to school. Being sodomized was traumatizing, but being unprotected by adults afterward was arguably worse. It taught me men weren't a safe haven for me. They were unreliable, cruel, and pretentious. This lack of faith in men only fueled me to work even harder to be talented, bright, unique, and wise. I felt I needed an upper hand at all times. I didn't want a partner. I wanted someone I could puppeteer so I could always keep them close enough to stay, but never quite close enough to hurt me. Of course, it didn't really work. As you continue progressing through this book, you'll find plenty of others I let my guard down around, all in a feeble attempt to love and be loved. Still, I subconsciously applied this strategy to all of my relationships, even after I got married. Unpacked, I can see my trauma was holding me back from experiencing real connection and pleasure with my husband. I think it's expected to an extent when something like rape is involved. If I said anal sex became an off-limits idea for me, I doubt anyone would be surprised. Many women feel this way without being sodomized, so of course I'd feel that way after what happened, right? But what if I told you I could never relax during sex of any kind? If I told you I didn't trust my husband because the men in my life before him betrayed me in such a profound way, you might feel less inclined to side with me. After all, he isn't them, which is something he has proven time and time again over the last decade. Give that man a break, Andy! For the record, I agree. Doing this work within myself to figure out why my shields kept flying up hasn't been easy. It has forced me to dig up painful memories and less than flattering truths about myself that I've long kept buried. I treated my trauma like a trifling bitch I could just block, delete, and carry on without. But that's unrealistic. We cannot run from the traumas that have happened to us. I mean, we can, but they always catch up one way or another. Think of it like the tortoise and the hare. Trauma is the tortoise. And we, the survivors, are the hare. In the beginning, victory seems imminent. Running from those deeply rooted feelings and memories is effortless. Peace out, pain. You can't outrun me. The tortoise falls behind. So far back, in fact, we eventually forget about the race altogether. I could really use a cheeseburger right about now. Let me pull out my carrot phone and see if there's any good spots around. Since we've forgotten why we were running and what we were fleeing from, we begin to settle in for some sightseeing. Ooh, let me get a selfie with this cactus shaped like Gumby! Eventually, we travel so far off the race course, we run into other people, 
maybe even a suitor who becomes a life partner. You may totally put together adult hair, and you're a totally put together adult hair. Let's get married and make babies. Soon, love, marriage, and the bunny baby carriage are overflowing. And you're like, we need a vacation from this hectic hair life. So you book a mini road trip with your hunky hair hubby, and the two of you hop along merrily en route to your destination. On your way, you see something moving slowly on the gravel road that sparks a memory. Oh my carrots, is that? No, no way. Could that seriously be? The closer you get, the more flashbacks you have. You think it's impossible. After all this time, after all these years, memories begin to race through your mind. Suddenly, you see the tortoise ahead of you as clear as when you left it on the starting line. You try to catch up, but it's too late. The tortoise lifts its long-clawed, webbed foot up and over the finish line seconds before you. Slow and steady, it won the race, and you bring your furry little paws up to your face in shame and disbelief. But I left you behind! How could I forget to finish the race? You realize then, of course, that you didn't win because you never finished. You simply got distracted from the world around you and forgot to continue on your journey. But the tortoise played the long game. It moved leisurely throughout the course without anyone to challenge it. What the hell do I mean by that? Like I said, trauma is the tortoise. If we try to run from it, life will eventually distract us enough to fall behind it. And when that happens, trauma creeps up on us and slowly wins. It takes over our conscious mind and begins micromanaging all of our decisions, relationships, and emotions. It wreaks havoc on our hearts and kicks up loose gravel in our eyes. It plays the long game because it knows all it has to do is outrun our efforts to avoid it. I dodged my memories of Kyle and that season of my life until it finally caught up with me and threatened to win the race. It vowed to rob me of human connection, companionship, and trust in someone other than myself. But realizing this has allowed me to call off the race entirely. Instead, I, and I think all of us, must learn to walk hand in hand with the tortoise. Only then, when we not only admit to ourselves that it's a part of us, but also learn to stop running from it, can we experience healing? I'll never forget being sodomized and harassed by my high school boyfriend. It's a part of my story I cannot erase, avoid, or outrun. Living alongside it instead of trying to run far away from it offers me the chance to isolate the trauma as a single season of my life rather than a rulebook for men, relationships, sex, and love. Allowing Kyle to ruin sex of any kind for me was an act of shrinking. It took unpacking to understand the reason why I could never fully relax my body, even as a married woman. Our bodies hoard unchecked trauma, and it manifests in the form of physical pains or discomforts. I never considered how my experience may have been playing into the ways my body felt and received sexual connection before. Once I began unpacking, I realized I've held tension in my thighs and pelvis for years, sometimes making sex I dearly wanted to have with the man I love painful and uncomfortable. 
When I finally recognized I was still living my life belly down on that bed, it was like a spark lit within me. I won't let him continue to rob me of connection, consent, and climax. Like Louise Hay articulated, you have the power to heal your life, and you need to know that. We think so often that we are helpless, but we are not. We always have the power of our minds. Claim and consciously use your power. I can trust my husband, my body, and myself. I can experiment in the bedroom and even have anal sex if I please. Because Derek isn't Kyle. Kyle isn't Derek. And I'm not my trauma. Sex didn't sodomize me. A person did. A snake in human skin that has long since been removed from my life. A person I've happily lived without, yet tried to outrun for so long. Too long. The only way out is through. And the only way through is together. The tortoise and the hare, side by side walking the course. Slow and steady, slow and steady. Trauma doesn't get the last word unless we freely hand it over. And personally, I got tired of letting it sneakily have the edge on me in the wings of my life. Embracing my story stopped it from consuming me. It gave me permission to let go of the lie that I can't trust men because they'll never protect me. It gave me permission to let go of the myth that I needed a man's protection at all. Thank you so much for listening to the Love Unpacked podcast. I'm your host, Andy Franklin, and you can find me on Instagram at Andy M. Franklin and at love underscore unpacked. And if you're interested in purchasing the book, it is sold on Amazon. IndieBound and Barnes & Noble.